open up your Bibles with me to Luke's Gospel in the 14th chapter. This is the time that we get to look into the Word of God, and it's our joy and delight to be able to do so, knowing that it's inspired by God and it's profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that we may be equipped for every good work. I know that as I've been working through uh, Luke with you all these last few years, I've found that there's a, a great many number of things that I need constant correction on and to give attention to in the process of growing in grace and holiness, and I trust that it's been that way with you all as well. Christ-likeness is our goal, and that is sometimes a slow and painful process, and it's never as fast as we may all like, uh, but one thing is crystal clear in the Bible, and that is the fact that the Christian life is one of constant transformation and growth. And that primary agent to cause that transformation and growth comes through the Word of God. Just like your body, uh, your body's growth is dependent upon food, your spiritual growth is dependent upon the intake of the Word of God. Jesus said in, uh, that man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 that he would be a good, good servant of Jesus Christ if he constantly nourished on the words of faith and the sound doctrine which he had been following. And even 1 Peter 2, 2 commends us and tells us that we should be like newborn babies who long for the pure milk of the word so that by it we may grow in respect to salvation. And so we want to have a regular systematic intake of the scriptures week after week, knowing that this is our spiritual food, and this will help us to grow in faith and godliness. So we're in Luke chapter 14, looking at verses 12 through 14 this morning. Luke 14, verses 12 through 14. I want to read these verses straight away this morning. And so if you've turned there in your Bible, I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 12 of Luke chapter 14, God's inspired, inerrant, and sufficient word says this. And he also went on to say to the one who had, or he went on to say rather, to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your all-sufficient word. We pray that it would work and penetrate deep into our hearts that we would take what we hear today, Lord, through the mouth of a mere man, and that it would bring glory and honor to you, that we might take it and be a doer of the word. Father, we just thank you for the scriptures, we thank you for this time, and we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. We've been uh, traveling with Jesus on his way to Jerusalem, where he's going to be delivered over to be crucified by the hands of sinful men. And we've been making our way there, uh, going from town to town and village to village as Jesus has been preaching and teaching on the kingdom of God. 
And we found ourselves over the last couple of weeks at the home of one of the leaders of the Pharisees who actually invited Jesus to come over for a Sabbath meal. But this wasn't a, a gesture of kindness on their part, but rather it was really an attempt to try to catch Jesus and trap him in something that he might do or something he might say that would cause him to be guilty of violating their law. But instead, it's been Jesus who's been dealing them a crushing blow to their sinful hearts by really exposing their hypocrisy and their understanding of the Sabbath and what it was actually for. And so we saw Jesus, he healed this man on the Sabbath day, and it really showed them that that the God of compassion and mercy never, ever intended the Sabbath to be devoid of compassion and mercy. And then last week, Jesus exposed the hearts of the guests by showing them how they were prideful and trying to sort of jockey for position to a greater and greater seat of honor as they came to sit at that U-shaped table we called uh, the triclinium. You remember the head of the U was the greatest place of honor, and then from there out around the U was less and less of an honorable position. But he taught them that they ought to really check their high thoughts of themselves because pride has absolutely no place in the kingdom of God. And in fact, the Bible is very, very explicit in that God is an enemy to all those who would actually desire to exalt themselves. We saw that in Proverbs 16.5, which said that everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. That's very strong language there. But rather, it's the humble and it's the contrite of heart that God will exalt. And the parable he used in in verses 8 through 10 wasn't just an illustration for a, a good etiquette for them or anything like that, but it had some spiritual, spiritual principles, excuse me, within it. And that spiritual principle that he gave them, that axiom was this, that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Those who truly see the depths of their sinfulness, those who know that they are solely dependent on the grace of God and salvation, will be the ones that actually get to see the kingdom of God. The exaltation of self, the elevation of self, will lead to nothing but disaster for your life and will bring you down to destruction. But this week, Jesus is going to take aim at the heart of the host. You might say that last week's sermon could have been titled, Where to Sit and what not, Where Not to Sit, and we could maybe say for this one, Who to Invite and Who Not to Invite. Because this week, Jesus is actually going to go straight for the heart of the host of this Sabbath meal. Jesus, being the incarnate Word of God, is able to rightly judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And the reason that he's going to the heart again and again with these guys is because it is actually the heart of man that ultimately defines the man. In other words, your life is defined by what's going on inside of your heart. The Proverbs say that as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And Jesus said that it's not that which goes into a man that defiles him, but that which comes out of him. And so what's infinitely more important than looking good before other people, what's, what's a greater value in being esteemed by your peers or at school or your clubs you're involved in or even your colleagues or even your fellow church members, 
What's of greater value is how you are viewed in the sight of God. That's where it really counts. When God looks down at your heart, what does He see? Does He see a heart of compassion and and mercy like He's extended to you by the demonstration and the healing of this man? Does He see a heart of pride and someone who is full of themselves, always trying to jockey for position in life, like these guys shuffling in, trying to get a, a better seat than the next guy? Do you want to examine your life accurately and definitely and definitively? Then look at your heart. Proverbs twenty-seven nineteen says, As in water, face reflects, reflects face, so the heart of man reflects man. And that's really what he's trying to get at here with these Pharisees and, and fundamentally going with us through his word. In fact, later on in Luke sixteen fifteen. He's going to say to these Pharisees about the corruption of their own heart. He's going to say, you are those who justify yourselves in the sight of men, but God knows your heart. For that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. And so everything they did, every move they made, was really an attempt to sort of garner respect and and admiration of their fellow countrymen and their fellow Pharisees. They sought the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They were whitewashed tombs, but full of dead men's bones, as Jesus put it in Matthew 23, 27. They looked really good on the outside, but they failed to look good on the inside where God can see. But they were a self-exalting, self-promoting, self-serving group of men, and it was even applied to, uh, to those they invited over to their house for a Sabbath meal. And so looking at verse 12, Jesus turns his attention to the host, and he looks at him and he says this, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, otherwise they may also invite you in return, and that will be your payment. So, in a typical day in the life of a Jew, there were only usually two meals that would be served throughout the day, a lunch and a dinner. And it was only on the Sabbath day that that third meal would have been added, which would have been like a breakfast in our understanding. And so, what that would really be bad news for those of you who like to graze a lot, or those of you who like to have five meals a day or whatever, right? I'm thinking there's probably some children here among us that would not be able to survive first century Israel. But for the most part, there were only just the two meals. But he says this, he says, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Now here, once again, is one of those places in Scripture that we just can't read this passage and interpret it in a, a literal, wooden fashion. Because if we did, all of these groups of people would be entirely excluded from ever coming into your home again, because this is what the Bible says, and this is what Jesus says, and so we must obey it. And so if we're looking, really, if you're looking for a biblical excuse to uh, never have to invite your brother that you never really cared for growing up or anything like that, or if you're looking for an excuse to never have to invite your in-laws over to your house again, I hate to break the news to you, this is not the text you want to appeal to, okay? But what Jesus is using here is something called hyperbole. Now, some of you children, 
you've probably heard mom or dad use hyperbole before, right? They've said, I've told you a million times, right? Or, we were so poor that we didn't have two nickels to rub together. Or, my personal favorite is, when I was a kid, I had to walk to school five miles in the snow, uphill, both ways, right? And so what a hyperbole is, is a statement that makes an extreme exaggeration in order to try to make a point, and it should not be taken literally. It's the opposite side of the spectrum from an understatement. And we'll see Jesus, he's going to use this later on in this particular chapter in verse 26, when he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And so he's not calling us on us as disciples to literally hate our family members here. But what he's calling on us to do is to love him to such a high degree, to have such an affection for him and a loyalty for him, that if we were to compare it to those that are precious to us, so those that are very dear to us, someone would look at us and say, wow, you know that guy over there? Man, he loves his wife. Oh, but he really, really loves Jesus. That lady over there, she loves her children. They are so precious to her. But she really, really loves Jesus Christ. He, he is the most precious thing to her. That young lady or that young man over there loves his brothers and he lo- she loves his sisters. And they would do anything for them. But she really, really loves Jesus Christ. And she would do absolutely anything for Christ. And so... What he's saying here, back in verse 12, is this, is like, do not only, do not do this exclusively. Don't just invite friends or brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. But Jesus was clearly exaggerating because he loved his family. And he often went to eat at the house of his friends. And so this isn't an absolute prohibition on who you should have in your home for a meal. Otherwise, we've got to charge Jesus with hypocrisy, and that we simply will not and cannot do. But he goes on to say why. Why in verse 12, when he says, Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. And so the issue that he's addressing here isn't one of civility or just being nice and kind to someone. But the issue here is one of reciprocity. The issue here is inviting someone over for lunch or dinner in order to get something back in exchange from them. And honestly, this applies and goes far beyond just dinner parties and and luncheons. Many of you are familiar with the term quid pro quo, which is a Latin term, which means this for that. I do something for you, you do something for me. You scratch my back, and I'll scratch yours. And many businesses, employers, they've got policies in place that forbid any kind of quid pro quo. But we all know, in the secular world, that this still exists. In some circles, we might call it the good old boy system. Maybe you went to to bid a job or something, and somebody else won the bid that's not necessarily better than you, or they had a better product or a service, but because they knew so-and-so, they had an in with the owner. 
Or, or maybe you went for a promotion at work, and the other guy got it because he's, he's the golfing buddy of the boss, or he's the drinking buddy, or he helped him move his house one time, or something like that. He did something for the boss, and when it came time, the boss re- rewarded him. There's an innumerable amount of scenarios in the workplace that we can come up illustrating this very same principle. But what Jesus is addressing here is a, is a sort of self-serving kindness. Doing something for someone else, knowing that you will get something back in return. Serving someone, knowing that you will get served back later on someday. And so, when we ourselves, we do these sorts of things, what this reveals in us is a heart that is actually exceedingly self-focused. It goes right along with uh, what he had just addressed with the group and their seatings arrangements and pride, doesn't it? When we ourselves, we, we limit our guest lists, or we only entertain people that we get along with or who will invite us back, or even when we as a church think that we can only have a, a certain mold or a certain demographic in our midst because they're going to help us look good or benefit us in some way, we have been become self-focused and we are no better than a Pharisee. We need to examine our hearts in this because, as I said, this principle extends far beyond just inviting someone over for lunch or dinner. I mean, are we doing things with strings attached, hoping that someday maybe we're going to reap the benefit of it in some way, maybe even if it's just praise and admiration that we're looking for? Are we doing things only for certain people because we think that that might benefit us later on in the future? But what should be our motivating factor, what should concern us the most, and whatever we do should be this, to do things for solely the praise and the glory of God. Not that we get something in back from return from someone. And so in verse 13, Jesus is going to show us the true path to authentic discipleship. In verse 13, he says this, But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. And so here Jesus is giving us our guest list of who we should invite. He says, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. Now this is quite a cast of characters here in this list. And in fact, if you look over in verse 21 of your text real quick, he uses the same list of people. In verse 21, it says, And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once in the street and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. So it's the same people, just a little bit different order there. But essentially what Jesus is saying here, and in verse 21, is invite the outcasts. Invite the unlovable. Invite those who have no means or no way to ever repay you. So think about that. What can a poor man give you? How much can a crippled or a lame person do for you in return? How much can a a blind man serve you? Not nearly as much to the extent that you can give and you can serve them. But this is who Jesus tells us that we should invite. This is who we should make sure that we focus our serving and our giving to. And i got to be honest with you. (laughs) 
This is that process of sanctification. This is pretty convicting to me as a pastor because there have been multiple times that we as a church, we have helped out families in need. People have called me with all sorts of problems in their life. We've helped with groceries and gas. We've uh, paid electric bills and turned back on the power to people's homes. We've helped replace car engines. We've bought dishwashers. We've roofed houses. We've moved households. We've repaired broken garages. All sorts of things that we have done as a church. And you know, every single one of those people that we've ever helped in that manner, that have been in need, have left our church. And you know what my sinful heart has said? What did we get out of that? Should we even ever do that again? You know, you feel like you're taken, but this is the sinfulness of our heart. I'm looking for something back in return for the blessing that we give them. And so the question is, should we even ever do that again? And Jesus Christ says, yes, yes, you should. Your giving to people and your serving of people is not so that you can get anything out of them. Otherwise, if you think so, You've got a self-serving heart. J.C. Ryle said, The Lord Jesus would have us care for our poorer brethren and help them according to our power. He would have us to know that it is a solemn duty never to neglect the poor, but to aid them and relieve them in the time of their need. We should absolutely help out whomever we can, whenever we can, with whatever ability that we have, and never, ever expect anything back in return. And why is that? Jesus tells us in verse 14, He says, And you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You will be blessed. You will be happy. You will get the joy. Luke recorded in Acts 20, 35, that Jesus said that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Because there's this this pipeline, so to speak, in which the blessings of God travel and it comes through our giving. Jesus even said earlier in Luke 6.38, He said, Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. But in other words, what Jesus is saying to us here in verse 14 is this, is that your practical day-to-day decisions in who you entertain as a guest, in who you serve sacrificially, in whom you give to liberally, will ultimately have spiritual, eternal implications. Although you may serve someone who may never serve you back, You may give to someone and never be given back to, although you may host someone in your home and feed them a meal and you are never invited to theirs. Jesus says that God will make amends for everything in heaven. God will settle all accounts. Because even though the person that you give to or invite in or even serve with your time and your money and has no means to repay you, God has a capacity that has absolutely no limits whatsoever. You simply cannot outgive God. But this passage isn't strictly talking about some sort of remuneration. What this passage is actually talking about is the fact that your serving, your hosting, your giving, 
is actually evidence of God's grace and mercy working in your life. The deeds that you do are not the basis of your salvation, but they are actually the evidence of it. It's not the root, it's the fruit. That's what it's talking about when it says that you will be repaid in the resurrection of the righteous. And so what greater blessing could you ever receive from anyone in this world compared to the blessing that God will give you in heaven? What could someone possibly do to you or or give to you that would compare with what God could give you or do for you? And so I want us to wrap up pretty quickly here with four points that I want us to consider if we only entertain and host those who are like ourselves and invite us back. The first one is number one. By inviting only those who are like ourselves, those who will pay us back in some form or another, where do you ever leave room for entertaining angels and entertaining strangers? Hebrews 13.2 tells us this. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Romans 12.13 tells us that we should practice hospitality. Elders, you're required to show hospitality in both 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8. And Peter tells us in 1 Peter 4.9 that we should be hospitable without complaint. The second thing is, By inviting only those like yourself and giving to only those who will repay you, you will miss out on seeing the joy that comes from those whom you have blessed. Think about it. Have you ever done something for someone who's who's not been capable to repay you? And, And seeing the joy and the happiness and the gratitude that they experience as a result from it, that's a blessing to you, is it not? The third thing. By inviting others only like yourself, you are dishonoring the example given to us by Christ, who loved the unlovable and gave himself and sacrificed himself so that we would not perish for all of eternity. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty might become rich. And the fourth thing, and by far the most important thing for your soul for all of eternity, by inviting only those who are like ourselves, where do we leave any room for receiving a reward at the resurrection of the righteous? Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 through 46. Many of you are familiar with this passage. It says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry? and feed you, or thirsty, or give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Then the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, 
to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Then he'll also say to those on his left, Depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So, beloved, how is your charity this morning? When was the last time that you just gave to someone in need or did something for someone who you knew that there was no possible way that they could ever pay you back? When was the last time, as an ambassador for Christ, did you manifest and display the mercy of God to someone in need? Jesus bids us all as followers of Him to walk in His way, to love our neighbors as ourselves, love the unlovable, display the mercy of God through your life to a lost and dying world. And our great God will make all things right in the end. This is the promise we have from Him this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You how it corrects us and instructs us. Father, let us not just hear these words this morning, but let us go from here, putting them into practice, displaying the mercy of God through our lives, Lord. Use us mightily for Your glory and for Your fame. Father, we just pray all these things in the precious name of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.